Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 5, 22-33 Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here and to see you all and those at home. Um, I wonder if you have ever played the game Balderdash. Balderdash is a game where you play with quite a few other people and you have a word. It might be something that's really an old-fashioned word or it might be a word that you have absolutely no idea what it means. And you have pieces of paper and you write down on the paper a funny or a catchy or a thought-provoking, this word might mean this, and you write down the meaning of the word. And then inserted into that, you also have the correct meaning of that particular word. And the game is to see if you can guess which is the right meaning. Some of them are very, very funny. Now, I have a word for you today, and the word is mellifluous. Now, some of you might know what that means. I didn't. Um, So, if you were to play this game today, I wonder if it means fluency or proficiency in a particular language. I wonder if it means sweet or pleasant sounding. I wonder if it means a beehive with a surplus of honey. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, but if you're very, very clever, you'll know that it means the second one, a sweet or pleasant sound. And actually, the sweet is linked to the honey. So it's sweet like honey. So that's the word mellifluous. That's your new word for the week. The other word I want you to think about this morning is the word pants. Now, pants, if you live in America, means long trousers. If you live in the UK, pants means your underwear. If you have a dog that is extremely hot, he might be panting. He might be have pants for water. Or... My kids, when they were teenagers, used to say, oh, mum, that's really pants, meaning something is absolutely worthless or rubbish. So one word can mean four different things, depending on the context. 
So there are two words we're going to look at together this morning, Heather and I. Um, we've titled this A Profound Mystery, understand, understood in two beautiful words. And the challenge with these two words is that we all think we know, that we know what they mean. And we assume immediately we hear them read even from the scripture reading this morning. I understand exactly what that means and I understand that what that means. When in actual fact, the truth is we really, really don't. And I want you to at home here, don't switch off thinking we are just going to hear a talk on marriage. This, uh, what we're going to look at today, the profound mystery affects everything in your life, everything in the world. When we look at the chaos, the rebellion in our world, all of it can come under the teaching that we're going to look at this morning, these two words, and be realigned and changed for the glory of God. So everything in your life, whether you're thinking, do I take a vaccine or don't I take a vaccine? What about Black Lives Matter? What about the whole issue of sort of gender identity? What about all of that Life, all of your life, your work life, your home life, your church life, all comes under this teaching this morning. And I'm praying that we, all of us, feel an alignment of the Holy Spirit to know how to live a life of love that flows out of a life of submission. There are two words we're going to look at this morning. Love, Heather's going to look at that, and I'm going to begin with submission. And I've said this is a profound mystery, not because it's a whodunit, uh, like an Agatha Christie, that a few of you in the room go, I've got it. No, no, no. The profound mystery is described already in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says to the church in in Ephesus and to the wider church, uh, he said, this is the mystery. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What is this mystery? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Under Christ. So our verse this morning in terms of submission, if you've got your Bibles open, he writes in chapter 5 verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And if you continue a little bit further, 24, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And all husbands go, result. That is fantastic in everything. I like this. Preach it, guy. Preach your heart out on this one. So, To understand the power and beauty of this word, Paul does not leave it for us to go to our culture for a definition of what submission looks like. He's speaking to wives. He's speaking to wives in in this whole area of marriage, and he's saying, wives, you need to understand, you need to submit to your Husbands, But how do you submit to your husbands? What is the blueprint? What is the model? What does it look like? Well, fortunately, he explains exactly what he, it looks like by saying, as, as Christ is the head of the church, the body which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands. 
So this is the glorious, wonderful picture we have of submission. Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, his body. And Christ is the one who describes what love is, the love of God, by his willing submission to his Father. Christ leaves the glory, the love that eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed. He leaves the glory of heaven and he becomes a man. He comes seeking a lost people. He comes seeking a bride. Hosea, the prophet in the Old Testament, pictures the, the, the people of God like a, like a prostitute, chasing after lovers. Christ came seeking his bride. And in order to win his bride, Christ lays his life down for that beautiful bride. Christ submits to his father in the garden and says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And in that beautiful act of submission, he goes through into the, the terror of the cross, the crucifixion, the death, the betrayal, the, the shame of the cross. He does that all for his bride. He submits everything for the bride. And, Christ, and, and the Father sees his righteousness and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is raised from the dead and opens the, the family home, opens the door of heaven so that you and I can come freely into the presence of God to become adopted as children of God, to become the bride of Christ, beautiful, beautiful, spotless bride. So what submission doesn't mean, first, are these four things. Firstly, it does not mean it's a wrestling term. It's not the father and the son and, oh, I don't want to really do it. No, the father delighted to do the will of the, uh, the son delighted to do the will of the father. In a marriage, it's not an arm wrestling game of submission. The husband said, oh, submit, pick her up, throw her on the, throw her on the floor. That's what submission means. No, it doesn't. Nothing Nothing could be further from the truth. Submission does not mean less than or inferior to. Christ's submission to his Father, when he says in Luke 22, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, we might go, in our understanding of submission, ah, Christ is submitting to the Father. That means what? He's number two in the Godhead? Is that how it works? Is the Spirit three and, you know, Father's one? No, because in Philippians it says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name. There is beautiful equals in the Godhead and wives are equals and co-heirs in the marriage. Thirdly, it does not mean less mature or knowing less. He's not speaking, when he's speaking to marrieds and, and women here, he's not saying uh, women submit to your husband because as a child submits to a parent. Dads or husbands are more clever or more smart. He's not saying that. And fourthly, he's not also saying actually mutually submit. He doesn't say wives submit to your husbands, husbands submit to your wives. And whilst there is mutual submission in the church, no, this is done for an ordering of the family. So what does it mean? Let me suggest what submission means. And if we can get hold of this, it will change our life and the way we submit in all things of our life to God and to every other authority. Firstly, it means life to the world. 
Submission means life to the world. Submission is found in Philippians 2 where it says, Jesus being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That cross That glorious cross brought life to the world. Submission is about bringing life to the world. As we find our alignment to the Father and the head, the Son, so his life, the Spirit's life flows through us in order to bless and pour out into this world. Just like you're plumbing at home. If you know anything about plumbing, you'll know there's a header tank. And as all the pipes align to that header tank, so life, so water will flow willingly through every tap throughout that home. God wants to bless this world and he blesses the world and he blesses the family as wives willingly submit to their husbands. Secondly, submission is talking about divine order. In chapter 1, verse 22, and God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed to be head over everything for the church. Jesus is Lord over everything. And there is an ordering of everything that needs to happen under Christ. That is why you and I are taught to pray the Lord's Prayer. And you remember what it says in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. Why do we pray thy will be done? Because we want our will to be done. But there is a divine ordering of our lives, of our church, of our work, of every part of our life, when we start to align ourselves to Christ the head and say thy will be done. Order is, God is not a God of chaos, but of order. And finally, submission means grace. Ephesians chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2, verse Uh, 10 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Submission means we allow ourselves to be put in the carpenter's hands and to be shaped according to his gracious plans for our life. So many Christians live their life and they are become a Christian. Now I want to go and do my will. No, when we become Christians, we put ourselves on the carpenter's bench and we, we live our lives according to the grain of wood. When you're planing wood, you plane with the grain. You plane with the will of God. That's why it talks about praying in accordance with his will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. As we do that, we find ourselves wonderfully living a fruitful life, living a life for the glory of God because we're going according to the grain. We're going according to grace. So submission, brothers and sisters, listening on the line, it's a beautiful word which we need to redeem in every part of our life and particularly in marriage. Now, you might think that I've got the easiest word to talk about, the word love. And granted, it's not as controversial. There aren't so many moments when you hear the word love as there is in the word submission. But I would suggest that sometimes we take the word love very simplistically. We might say, I love chocolate, which I do. We might say, I love my cat, 
which when I had one, I did. We might say, I love my husband or my wife or my mother or my father, which is true. Or we might say, God loves me. And obviously that use of that word love varies in its strength and its meaning in the sense of the context that it's put in and the way that we use it. So far from being a simple word, love, I would say, in the Bible sense, has a sense of divine mystery in it. It's not easy to understand. And actually, personally, I think the men who are married here have that, that have a hard task, to be honest, to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So we thought, again, with this word love, we'd look at what it isn't before we look at what it is. So first of all, love is not eros. It's not sexual love. It's not physical attraction. And in our world today, most people get the two muddled up. When you fancy somebody, that's probably an old-fashioned word, but Guy and I, bear with us, we have been married 39 years, so we're older than most of you here today. And we used to talk about fancying somebody, which meant when you saw them, you had that, ooh, gosh, they're so gorgeous, I really, really like them kind of feel to it, okay? Or you might say it's got that sense of sexual attraction, that frisson, that, oh, wow, I really like this person. But this love in this chapter is not talking about that kind of love. Despite Hollywood, despite TV, and all the most of the shows, at least, that you see, or that awful program that I haven't even dared watch, Love Island, which is all about that sexual attraction. You look at somebody you think they might be nice to go to bed with, and you can wake up possibly the following morning having done so. You barely know the person's name. You certainly don't know anything about them. And you might actually discover you don't even really like them. So love is not eros. It's not sexual attraction. Neither is it a kind of mutual friendship. Obviously, in marriage, friendship is important. Uh, but love in this sense is not, oh, you like stamp collecting. Wow, so do I. We obviously are compatible. We really should get married it's not that kind of feeling. Neither is it based on you do 50% of the work and I'll do 50% of the work. It's a kind of shared split of responsibilities. So it's not a mutual friendship in this context. Neither is it something natural. Now, if you grew up with Disney films like I did and my kids did, you might be tempted to think that somewhere out there in this big wide world is the person for you. They will complete you. They will be your other half. They will be your soulmate. They are the perfect person for you. The first kiss, let me tell you, does not mean you will necessarily live happily ever after. So love is not any of those things. So let's have a look, therefore, at what love is. And in this passage, we're talking about agape love. We are talking about love as, as a decision, not as a feeling. I remember Ruth, the wife of the previous pastor here, Greg Haslam, saying to me, right feelings follow right actions. We tend to assume it's the other way around. If I feel all lovey-dovey, then I'll treat my husband well. Sometimes when you do the right thing, the feelings of love follow after doing so. Christ is our example. 
greater love has no man than this, that he gave his life for his friends. It says in John 15, verse 13. But Christ takes it to another level because he lays down his life for his enemies. And it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in Romans 5, verse 8. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church is willingly laying your life down for that person so that she can live and flourish and be all that God means her to be. Secondly, it's a pure and purifying love. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? That verse where it says, um, love your wives just as Christ loved the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And there's that sense in which the spiritual life of your other half, your wife, is not dependent on you, but you do have a responsibility to maintain and encourage, to pray for, to spur her on to all that God means her to be. That is part of your responsibility to love her. In Romans 8 verse 34, it says, at the right hand of God, Jesus is interceding for us. He is praying for you in your life today. And your husband can be praying for you in the same way that you would be released. That As you follow his example, it inspires you to faith and trust in God in a greater way. He hopefully will teach you what it means to say, I'm sorry, I've got it wrong. And you will learn to forgive as you forgive each other. So, and thirdly then, it is a love beyond all lesser loves. It talks about here, um, husbands loving your wives as you love your own bodies. And nobody has to teach anybody to love their own bodies. From the youngest of ages, we are self-aware, uh, shall we say. Not self-obsessed, because it is the way we are made. We are made to cry when we're hungry. We need water. We need to be cleaned. We need to be dressed and kept warm. We learn to live our lives all around us and how we feel. And husbands don't need to be taught how to look after their bodies, by and large. They might be needed to wash their feet occasionally. Um, sorry, that's just come to me. <laughs> but there is this sense in which we, we need that cleansing. We need that being prayed for. We need that nurturing, that caring for our spiritual health. Um, and also that, that bit in that verse about... Um, uh, cleaving to your husband and wife, becoming that one flesh, which is, again, another profound mystery. And that means that she becomes your number one. Your parents are no longer your number one. Neither is your best mate that you go out with and love spending time with. She is your number one, which means putting her needs before the needs of other people. It means actually sometimes displeasing your parents because you're going to put her first, not your mum. So all those three things are all tied up in what it means here in this passage to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, Guy and I thought it might be fun to outwork this practically by writing an imaginary letter to ourselves as we are now, the age we are now, writing to ourselves at 21 when we got married. So Guy is going to read his letter to me and hopefully you will learn from it and so will I. And then I will do the same to you for Guy. Okay, an open letter to Heather. 
My darling Heather, I'm writing this letter to you, my beautiful bride, on this our wedding day, July the 17th, 1982, with a hindsight of 39 years of marriage. I want you to know in all your high emotion and puppy dog eyes, you've no idea what you're letting yourself in for. And I want to talk to you about the powerful text of Ephesians 5.25, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Let me begin by saying this on our wedding day. You are and look amazing. And you quite literally take my breath away. So much beauty, so many promises, all the cost and extravagance of this wedding, the guests and the ceremony, right at the center of it is you, my wonderful, beautiful bride. But may I tenderly lift your chin heavenwards so that you might see that this day and this wedding and this marriage was never ultimately about you or me, but him, Jesus the bridegroom who loves his bride, the church. So this happy wedding day and every other day of our marriage is to be a reflection of Christ and his church. He is the groom and he loves his bride. He has worked eternally to bring her to his wedding feast and to present her radiant and spotless. It is he who speaks over his church and over you, Heather, for better or worse, for richer or poorer. It is he who covenants not through rings, but through a cross to love and to cherish in sickness and in health. And it is he who submits to his father, even to death on a cross, in order that we might become God's children and live with him eternally. But let me give you a few heads up what submission is and isn't within the years that lay ahead so you can be strengthened and comforted and others may learn. You are, the Bible affirms, my God-given equal in every way, my partner, my lover, my confidant and my best friend. So listen carefully to these words of wisdom honed in the fiery furnace of God's word and our experience. Your husband is going to get a lot of things wrong. And when I say a lot, it's no exaggeration. In my worst moments, I might try and bully you into a decision where I use the word submission like a wrestling term. Please feel free to lovingly and humbly refuse to my manipulation, my bullying, harshness, and attempting to control with huffs and puffs, moody, grumpy sulks, or perhaps worse of all, through legalistic scriptural manipulation. Please don't correct me in front of the children or friends, as my ego is eggshell thin and I'm likely to overreact. I come from a long line of overreactors. Don't respond to harsh words or differences of opinion in the heat of the moment. Neither let anger run over until tomorrow, but find a time and a space, more difficult when the children arrive, when I have had time to reflect and cool down and where I'll be open to you lovingly showing me your reservations and learning to be sensitive to hear your heart. 
you and I will need to be each other's saviour with a little s. So many times I need you to grant me your forgiveness and I'll always try to be grateful, to learn and to become stronger. Let me also tell, encourage you, the many times you will lovingly and reverently submit to my God moments, my God obedience, prophetic moments that will appear at the time to be foolish. For example, we're going to build good careers in a nice home in security and I will ask you to give it all up on a God promise that feels as substantial as a candy floss meal. On another occasion, I will talk fancily about having a big family and your loving submission will put you in a maternity ward many times over. And there will be times you will want to throw me out of the window. I will watch your humble submission to motherhood and be in awe of your wisdom and capacity to love and forgive. Finally, you will see the frailty of this man falling off ladders, returning home from overseas trips to be rushed into hospital, and you will lovingly, with a good heart of submission to God, put him back together again and release him to fly higher with his Saviour. Today, on this, our wedding day, I salute you, my bride and my joy. But to be frank, you are a mystery to me. A garden locked up, as the Bible says, and you will remain a mystery to me all the days of my life because you are a woman and I am a man and we are not the same. Bringing us together is God's plan and a God mystery that will only be fully resolved when together holding hands we stand before his throne of grace in the new heavens and the new earth. But for today, this day, your wedding day, let me encourage you with these words. Submit to your husband as to Christ. And please know, Heather, that flowing from your obedience will literally be thousands of lives that are touched and transformed. My turn. Dear Guy, I realise even as I write this letter that I'm asking you for the simplest and yet the most profound mystery of all. I'm asking you to love me. I still remember when you said it first. I was 16. It was our first date and your mum had just let us out of the car. Three simple words which I couldn't bring myself to say back because I hardly knew you. Truth be told, you hardly knew me either. You liked my looks. You were excited to hear that I would go out with you. And you got the tingles when, your when you held my hand. But love? As I look back to our wedding day, age 21, this is what I wish I could have told you then. We promised to love and to cherish until death us do part. We knew a bit more about love by then. You knew I could be moody, sulky, selfish, and was way too worried about making a good impression on those around me. And so... I became your wife, and God instructed you to love me as Christ loved the church. In case that wasn't daunting enough, Paul expands it by saying, you have to give yourself up for me. Can I say thank you for the infinite number of times I know you'll have to do that, when you'll have to put my needs before your own, when you'll watch call the midwife instead of the football, 
when you'll bring me breakfast in bed rather than have a lie-in, when you'll hold me close while I have a good cry, when you'd prefer to take me to bed. Marriage to you will give me a new name, a new destiny, access to your bank account, and countless times of comfort and protection. You'll remind me of the way Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5 verse 26 is constantly, Christ is constantly cleansing his bride by the washing with water through the word. This is a regular necessity, a deep scrub and not a quick wipe. The longer you know someone and the first flush of romantic love has passed, you'll quickly become aware that this other person has many weaknesses as well as strengths. Bravely, you'll have to bring correction or cleansing to me and I won't always welcome it. I will make mistakes, hurt your feelings, sometimes deliberately. I will say the wrong thing and be totally unreasonable and selfish and sinful. Please, please tell me, don't duck out. Please don't think it's more loving to leave me in my mess, but please don't do it harshly. I'm sensitive and easily hurt, but I can receive it more easily when you're gentle and considered. By all means, direct me to scripture but don't bash me over the head with it. It makes me feel stupid and resentful. Also give me time to say sorry. I will say it, but let me have time to process. In Ephesians 5 verse 27, the bride is described as the radiant church. I felt radiant on our wedding day, thrilled to be finally walking down the aisle to you. However, in the years that follow, I won't always look radiant. I'll have PMS pregnancy four times, childbirth right in front of you. My skin will stretch, I'll have baby vomit down my front, and my eyes will have deep dark bags under them from lack of sleep. I will get older, my face become lined, my hair grey despite, despite attempts to cover it up. Please love me as I am and don't make me feel self-conscious about any of these things. Please see beyond the external and cherish me the way Christ cherishes his bride. I hate to see men belittling their wives, ridiculing or ignoring them. I see their shoulders sag with hurt and disappointment. This is not Christ's way and it's not to be yours. Please, with God's help, attempt to love me as you love yourself. This happens not just in expansive displays of love or the lavish generosity of large gifts, but in the small day-to-day things when you feed and care for me. One day you will see a dear friend of ours whose wife got dementia. This man will show us that love continues to be practiced even when the aged partner is unknowing, unseeing, and a mere shadow of the woman he fell in love with. Daily loving like this goes way beyond the mushy feelings we thought it was, the sexual attraction presented through films and the media. Instead, it's a daily choice, a surrendering of our wills to serve the one we love and ultimately love sacrificially like our saviour. Today, today and day, in and out, put their needs before our own. Over time, we will become a living representation of how Christ loves his church, not perfectly, but stumblingly, until one day we'll be forever changed and forever united to our true husband, Christ himself. So that's a fairly 
a different way of just expressing something of the wonderful truths that are contained in these verses. But as I said at the beginning, this is not just for married. Um, this is a message for all of you. Because when we don't align ourselves to our head, we find that actually we make a mess of our lives. And this morning is about our alignment. And uh, so if the worship group want to come up, I'm just going to just encourage you to respond to this message in this way as we sing this song. I want you to think about your life today. And I want to think about your biggest challenge today. It might be in your work. It might be in relationships. It might be in marriage. It might be in, in, in a whole number of things that you're facing and you're thinking, do you know what? I think I know how to do this. I don't think I need the church to tell me. I don't think I need God to tell me. I think I know. And you'll make a mess of your life. I want you to imagine a Rubik's Cube. I know we don't have those very often these days, but all the different faces are different colours. And God is turning this church to make this church glorious and beautiful on all its different sides. But for that to happen, every little piece has to be aligned to find its place in this church. And so I'm going to pray now that God would move in this church, that our hearts would be aligned and our hearts would be crying out this morning, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that as we do that, the love of Christ would flow in this church like a giant sort of fountain from the head pouring out through every member into the highways and byways around here that this world, this dark world would know something of the love of Christ. Why don't we just stand as I pray? If you're at home, please feel free to stand, to kneel. Lord Jesus, thank you for this profound mystery. Thank you for the fact that you are the head of this church. This is your church. Westminster Chapel doesn't belong to Howard or the elders. It belongs to Christ. And you are the head. And you speak to your body. And you speak lovingly and winsomely and wonderfully. And you say to your church, church, hear. Hear the word of the head. Align yourself to pray and to live for the will of God and not the will of man. And I pray today something profound would happen in all of our lives that we would stop contesting, stop fighting in our, in our personal lives, in our thought lives, in our work lives to see that as secular and church attendance is sacred. No, the whole of our lives is sacred to you. And I pray for an alignment. Let your kingdom come this morning in Westminster Chapel. Let your will be done in every member's life. Lord, we want you to flow, Holy Spirit, through us, filling us now with the love of Christ, but enabling us to flow with this love of Christ towards the weak and the undeserving, towards the lost and the hurting. Come, Holy Spirit. May this word do us good. May we feel ourselves being aligned by the presence of God as we think about this word and put it into practice. I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.